Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you're in a ship, where do you want the water to be? And I think, children, you know that when you're in a ship, you want the water to be on the outside of the ship and not on the inside. Because if the water's inside the ship, you've got a problem. And if humanity, if the human race were a ship, it would be a ship with the water on the wrong side. If humanity were a ship, then we're a ship which has had a massive explosion in the engine room. We have no power. We are listing to one side. There is a massive hole under the waterline, and the water is coming in, and we're sinking, and we're all going down together. And you remember in the last Lord's Days, Lord's Days 2, 3, 4, 5, you remember the questioner in the catechism is looking for a way out of the problem. I used a different metaphor, but the point is there's a problem. He was looking for a way out. And, and finally, Lord's Day 6 came along, and Lord's Day 6 confessed that glorious scripture truth that there is a solution, there is a way out. Lord's Days 5 and 6 present to us the another the one who comes to stand in our place, the one who comes to save us, the one who comes to, to, to rescue us from a situation that we cannot save ourselves from. And so, Laws 5 and 6 have presented this wonderful, glorious gospel news. There is hope, there is deliverance, and that's the title of the second part of the catechism, our deliverance, our being saved. And when you're on a ship which is sinking, that's a great word to be focused on. Deliverance, salvation, being saved. You don't care about anything else. The cafeteria may have all kinds of delicious treats, but you're not interested in that. You want to be saved. You want to be taken off this ship. And so there's a solution. And so as we sit there in the ship's cafeteria, the water up to our knees, we're kind of leaning sideways because the ship is sideways, and we hear this, this good news. Then the questioner in the category says, well, so everything's okay, right? You know, Adam blew a hole in the hull and blew a hole in the engine room and, and uh, everything went bad, but now, now there's Christ, and so... Everyone was doomed, but now we're all saved. Is that how it works? Did you see the first sentence of answer 20? Very short and to the point, right? It's just one word. One word and then a full stop. No, full stop. That's not how it works. Why doesn't it work that way? If we all fell in Adam, why can't we all be made alive in Christ? In fact, there are some texts in Scripture which use that kind of dynamic. All have died in Adam and all are made alive in Christ. And, and you may be tempted to go to those verses and say, look, it says that right in the Bible. But if you read the entire context of Scripture, you know what the situation is. That ship of fallen humanity, let's call it the ship Adam, is a fallen, sinful, rebellious humanity and all you need to do to be in that ship of doom, doomed to destruction, all you need to do to be in Adam is to be born. 
Every human being who is born is born in Adam and born in a state of sin and born with a nature of sin and born as a child of wrath and born under the judgment of God and deserving eternal destruction. That's the default for every one of us. And the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as true man and true God to deliver us doesn't change that fact which applies to all those who are in Adam. And so to use the metaphor of the ships, there's another ship. And that other ship is the last Adam. Christ, true God, true man, a new humanity, a redeemed humanity. And that ship comes alongside. And the way salvation works is that you need to be moved from that sinking wreck, which is those who are in Adam, into that beautiful, safe ship, which has all the water on the outside of it and none of it inside. You need to be moved from those who are only in Adam and become one with those who are in Christ. And so I said it already, to be born in Adam, or to be in Adam is very easy, you just get born. But how do, you, how do you get to be in Christ? Well, the Catechism tells us those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Now, I was going to go with Romans 11 and the whole grafting analogy, and then I realized that last year I, I preached on Laws A7 uh, here when I came to visit, and I used that analogy. So I'm just going to change the metaphor today, and I'll go with the ship instead. So to, to say this in ship terms, you need to be transferred over from the sinking ship to the safe ship. You need to be in Christ. How does that work? How does that happen? Well, by a true faith. That's how it happens. Now, perhaps you've read adventure stories, you've read books about shipwrecks and sinking ships, and you may remember that sometimes on the high seas if a ship is sinking, something that they used to do, at least in the old days, is they would rig up a line from the, 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 the safe ship to the sinking ship. And then they would rig up what they call a, a bosun's chair, and that would move back and forth between the, the sinking ship and the saving ship. And so you rig up that line, and you shoot it over, and you attach it, and then people uh, sit in that kind of bosun's chair, which is kind of uh, ropes and material, and then they're pulled off the wreck, and they're saved. And that's and no metaphor can be stretched too far, but that's kind of a nice picture of how salvation works. When Christ comes to us, it's all God's work. He comes to us, he shoots that line, he makes those connections, he pulls us off the wreck, which is our fallen humanity. That makes me think of John 6, verse 44, where the Lord Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's this whole dynamic in salvation of sovereign action by God. He calls, he draws. Without his work, we have no hope. Without his grace. And so faith is that connection to salvation, to Christ, 
graciously given by the Holy Spirit. By grace you are saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God. That's Ephesians 2. And God uses that faith to, to unite us to Christ. When we're united to Adam, we're united to death. When we're united to Christ, we're united to life. Adam is union with sin. When Christ, in Christ, we're un united with holiness. When we're connected to Adam, we're united to guilt. When we're united with Christ, we have union with him in all of his innocence. Adam is unrighteousness. Christ, union with Christ, is righteousness. And I can go on, but I think you get the point, right? If you're connected to Adam, then you're in union with eternal judgment in hell. And when you are connected with Christ by true faith, you are in union with eternal life and heavenly joy and glory. So it's kind of important, isn't it? It's a very important set of questions to ask. What is faith? Do I have faith? Where do I get faith from? These are important questions. These are the most important questions that we should be asking ourselves. Because it's literally a question of life or death. And so we move on to the 21st question and answer. And the Catechism teaches us from the Scripture that faith, first of all, is a sure knowledge. It is accepting as true all that God has revealed in His Word. And that's the opposite of what happened in the garden, isn't it? What happened in the garden? The serpent said, don't trust God's word. Has God really said? Don't believe God's word. Don't accept God's word as true. And Adam and Eve fell for it. That's exactly what they did. They didn't trust the word. They didn't believe the word. They didn't accept the word as true. And when God comes to save lost, fallen sinners, by the power of his spirit in our hearts, he turns around, he, he changes our attitude towards his word. And the undoing of the fall includes a totally new perspective on the trustworthiness of God's word. Faith is to accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. Whether I see it, whether I understand it, whether I can explain it or not, if God said it, it's truth, period. That's the hard lesson we've learned from when we didn't say that in the Garden of Eden. But is that enough? Is it enough to have a sure knowledge whereby we accept as true all that God has revealed in the Word? Well, let's think about that ship again, right? The, the ship Adam, that sinking ship, that ship that's doomed. And we're sitting in the cafeteria, the water is up to our knees, and and we have a piece of paper on the table. The water hasn't reached the table yet, so we've got the paper on the table. And we're looking at this diagram of a bosun's chair and, and, and the, the other ship, the saving ship, and how the, the line is connected and how it's rigged and how the, the chair moves between the two ships and saves those who are doomed to destruction. And we're sitting there saying, yes, this is true. Oh, yes, this is so true. This is really the only way for us to be saved. And we're all nodding wisely. And then we say, well, let's go back to our stateroom and watch a movie. 
That's not going to do you much good. You can know the truth about how to be saved. But it's going to be more than just knowing. And so the catechism continues. At the same time, it's not just knowing. You've got to know. But then you have to have more than that. You've got to have a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. It's a firm confidence. So not just some general belief in some general truth. A true faith means I know this is true because God said it. I know this is true for me. I know that God loves me. I know that God forgives me. I know that God declares me righteous in Christ. I know that Christ came to die and to shed his blood to wash me from all my sins. Why? Not because I'm good. Not because I'm worthy. Not because I worked hard. Not because I earned it. Not because I'm so special. But because God is good. And because Christ is good. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, if you can. Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to look at a few verses there. Where we see this dynamic uh, being described by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And just imagine these, these, these ships here. It begins with us in the ship of doom. You were dead. This is page 976 in your pew Bible, if you have a pew Bible. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the ship of doom. That's fallen humanity, doomed to eternal destruction. Verse 4, but God is the one who acts. In his sovereign mercy, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work, walk in them. We can't stretch the metaphor too much. Just stay with the, the broad lines. But basically, what's happening in view of Ephesians chapter 2 is that we, we, we see the truth of salvation. We know it to be true. And so we know it to be true for us. We get up, we walk to that boson's chair, and we sit in it, and we accept, as, as question answer 20 said, we accept all his benefits. It's all grace. It's all the sovereign work of God. We just rest in it. And God draws us to himself. He draws us from destruction to life. It's all from faith to faith, from faith, faith from beginning to end in the sovereign, gracious mercy of God. 
and we rest in that finished work of Christ. So where do you get faith like that from? If faith is the difference between heaven and hell, life and death, and if faith is that sure knowledge and that firm confidence in the Word of God, where do you get it? Look at the last line of question answer 21. This faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. Now, we don't have time to look at all the the texts here, but I'm going to mention a few texts very quickly. Acts 16, verse 14, Paul was preaching in Philippi, and God opens Lydia's heart to receive the gospel. That's an example from the Scripture. The Holy Spirit works in her heart. She can't accept the Scripture on her own with her own power. She can't decide to accept or reject Jesus or the gospel. But God, the Spirit, works in her heart, opens it, and she believes the message. Romans 1.16, Paul describes the gospel as the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It is the power of God. It's not the power of the believer. The belief, the faith is a gift of grace. The work is the work of a sovereign, saving God. And Romans chapter 10, if you look at Romans chapter 10, and if you open that in your Bible for a second, Romans 10 begins by Paul saying, listen, the Jews worked really, really hard. The people of God worked hard. They tried to find this righteousness, but they tried to do it with their own work. That didn't, that didn't work. It didn't work out. And then he says in verse 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's believing which connects us to the saving work of God in Christ. And then in verse 13 again, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not not people that do good things, not people that do good works, not people that try and work at saving themselves, but calling on the name of the Lord. And then he goes through this this bunch of questions in verses 14 and following. How can you call on God if you haven't believed in him? How can you believe in him if you've never heard him speak to you. Now look carefully at verse 14, the end there, or the middle of it. And the Greek can be translated in this way. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? In other words, if Christ has not spoken to them, how can they have faith in him? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach without someone being sent? So what is the scripture telling us? The scripture is telling us The only way to be saved is to believe. And the only way to to, to believe is when God comes and speaks to you. And the power of God works salvation. And the grace of God works faith in the heart. That's what the scripture says. Now, this doesn't comport with what we would think would be the best way to bring people from darkness to light. You know, we have a lot of ways which we could come up with to better present the gospel than the way that God came up with. I mean, if you think of a Hollywood movie, you think of the way they do, they have these, these, these lists at the end of the, all these countless names, so many talented people with the, the best music and the best animations and the best uh, videography and the best acting, and they can come up with this movie which just It's just so powerful. The message is so powerful. Sometimes we catch ourselves being caught up in a message which we don't agree with, but the movie is just so powerful that we're brought along with it. Why doesn't the church do that? 
Why doesn't the church, instead of paying all these different ministers and all these different congregations, why don't we just get all our money together and get a really good team and make super good gospel movies, which are just so powerful, and the music just swells, and, and people's emotions are stirred, and they just they want to follow God, and they want to love the Lord Jesus. Very powerful. There are all kinds of powerful media which we could use. But what does God say about all that? 1 Corinthians 1.21. This is, a, this is a, a text which we ought to have in our minds and in our heads, in our hearts, brothers and sisters. Because Paul's talking about this whole question of like being an effective communicator of the message. In Paul's day, they thought that great messages were delivered by people that were like Greek athletes, like the Greek gods. And they were very amazing and, and good-looking, and they were very intelligent, and they used the best highest kind of rhetoric that you could find. And then here comes Paul, and he's powerful in his writing, but he's weak in his presence. He's a little bald, short little guy with spindly bow legs. And he's kind of unhealthy. He's kind of sickly. And he doesn't impress his audiences. There's nothing in this guy to impress. Paul knows, Paul knows all about that. What does he say in 1 Corinthians one twenty one? He says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Another translation which you can also make here, it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, that's what preaching is. And the wisdom of God, that's what preaching is. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that's why we just keep preaching. No matter all the other possibilities for communicating the gospel, we embrace the foolishness of preaching because God said, and that's the way the Holy Spirit has ordained to work faith and to strengthen faith. Now, if you believe, what do you need? What's the content of the faith that you need to have? And, and question answer 22 answers that on the next page. What do you need to believe? Well, I need to believe everything, all that is promised in the gospel, as the creed teaches us in a summary. And if you look at the creed, do you notice that the creed is basically the most succinct and most beautiful summary of the entire scripture? What book does it begin with? It begins with Genesis. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator. That's, that's Genesis. And it goes through the history of redemption with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into glory, and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church, and, and the work of the Holy Catholic Church throughout the ages, at pre preaching and declaring the, the forgiveness of sins, and then ending with the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's Revelation. This is, these 12 sentences summarize the whole Bible. What do you need to believe if you have true faith? You need to believe what God says in the entire scripture. You can't pick and choose the parts that you like or that you don't like. 
Let God be true, though every man be found a liar. God's word is like silver seven times refined. It is sure, it is certain, it is sealed by his mighty acts of salvation in Christ. And in the gospel, God speaks to you his truth. And in your baptism, God seals to you the truth of his word. And in the Lord's Supper, God confirms to you the truth of what he says. When Paul goes to the Thessalonians, he says, you know, when I came to you, you received the gospel not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. You received the word, he says, the word of God, not as the word of man, but as it really is the word of God. That's the scriptural understanding of preaching, that a no one, a nothing, a jar of clay that is useless in himself and can be easily substituted by any other jar of clay. But in that jar of clay, there is a treasure that is of unspeakable value. And that treasure is Christ himself. And it is in preaching that Christ offers himself to lost and unworthy sinners like us. And that's the understanding of preaching and preachers that the, the gospel gives us. In Corinthians, second letter to the Corinthians 5.20, Paul says this, we're ambassadors of Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And we appeal to you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. So God is the, the content of the scripture. Christ is the content. And God is the one who is addressing us. And when God speaks, brothers and sisters, things happen. When God speaks, universes spring into existence. When God speaks, there is light. When God speaks, the dead are raised. When God speaks, then hard and rebellious and, and unbelieving hearts are transformed into hearts of flesh which believe and trust and love God. And because that's what preaching is, that's why we make a point of showing up for worship. We're certainly not showing up for the entertainment, are we? Because there is none. But we come because we hunger and thirst for the living word. We hunger and thirst for the water of life. We hunger and thirst for Christ himself. We come because we need Christ. We hunger for him in the word. We hunger for him in the sacraments. Because to be in Christ, we need faith. And so we, we study the scriptures and we read the scriptures. And we especially make diligent use of the means of grace the preaching and the sacraments, and we pray, O oh Lord, work faith in my heart. O oh Lord, strengthen faith in my heart. O oh Lord, work and strengthen faith in the hearts of my children. Brothers and sisters, it's because of what preaching is. It's because of what faith is and the importance of faith that we make a point of bringing our children to public worship as soon as we can. And I just want to spend a few minutes on, on the importance of that because it's not common in the modern church to pay attention to this. Imagine you were in a city which is afflicted by a great contagious disease and many are dying and a lot of people are dying and it's certain death if you get this disease. And imagine that, that this medicine has been discovered which will save you from this disease if you've caught it. And everybody's contagious and everybody's infect, infected and everybody needs that medicine. And the mayor, the town, the city officials, they say, come to the, the stadium in the middle of the city and we will hand out 
this life-giving medicine to each person in the stadium. And we show up there looking for life and looking for healing. And at the door, the city officials say, only the adults. The kids will go to another room where they will draw pictures of the medicine. They will have a puppet show about receiving the medicine. But only the adults can come in for the real thing. What would you do, father and mother? What would you do? You would stop at nothing to bring your children to where there is the hope of life and healing. And brothers and sisters, let us be diligent in bringing our children into the workshop of the Holy Spirit. The world may say it's dumb and it's foolish, and the Bible says it too, it's foolishness for the world, but it is the wisdom of God. They need to hear God speak to their little hearts. They need the power of the Spirit to work in their little hearts, to work faith, to strengthen faith. It's so vital for life, brothers and sisters. That's why we grieve when people we love don't care about public worship. That's why we grieve when our brother Seth for so long has not diligently attended the worship services, has despised the proclamation of God's word. We grieve because we know that there is no life apart from Christ and no life apart from union with Christ by true faith. And we know that the word preached is a primary means to work faith that unites us to Christ and that outside of Christ we are lost. There is nothing, nothing more important in all the world than to be in Christ. And that's why the word is central in our worship. That's why the word is central in our lives. The word sung in the Psalms. The word prayed. The word preached. The word pictured in the sacraments. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we pray for the opportunity when we're evangelizing people. We pray for the opportunity to to invite them to come under the preached word. Because when God speaks, things happen. Now remember, everything went wrong when we didn't listen. Everything went wrong when we didn't trust in God's word. That's what connects us to Adam, that unbelief. That connects us to his lostness. But everything was made right when the Spirit of God changed our hearts and and uses the gospel to work faith and grafts us into Christ. He brings us out of that ship of death and doom into the ship of hope and salvation and life. That's what deliverance is, brothers and sisters. It's being united to Christ by faith. So, brothers and sisters, Love the word, delight in the word, long for the word, hunger and thirst for it, treasure the word, for through it we come to know Christ himself, to the point where we can say it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And to know Christ in that way, that is eternal life. Amen.